It's a joy to be with everyone this evening. It is a Saturday night. Many people were here last night, which was a Friday night. And so it's especially encouraging today to see you because this is not normally a day of worship. It's normally a day where you can relax and go do some things that you would enjoy and, and you know, take part in recreational activities. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things, but these things that we're doing tonight are of eternal and therefore utmost importance. So we're encouraged that you're here, um, that you have an interest in spiritual things to the degree that you're willing to sacrifice your time to come and worship and to listen to the good news presented from God's Word. So I encourage you to follow along as we study from God's Word. There are many from other congregations that belong to the Lord in this place. We're certainly thankful for your presence. It's very encouraging that you would be here to support this gospel effort as we introduce this location in this community. But there are some who are visiting here who perhaps are not members of the Lord's body, who are not members of the Church of Christ. And I'm sure that you're here because you saw our announcement on Facebook or some other way of communication. And you might have noticed there that we invited you to come worship God and to hear a little bit about what we believe and what we practice. Last night I had the announcements and I mentioned there is no way even in a week-long meeting, that we could cover every topic that we believe and that we practice that the Bible covers. And it's no less true for a 30-minute sermon. I'm going to try to stick to that. So uh, forgive me ahead of time if that doesn't happen. But suffice it to say, there are so many things that we believe because the Bible contains so many different things. And so I'm not going to suggest that we're going to cover everything tonight. That would be impossible. It would be arrogant for me to attempt to do that. But our hope is, from last night into today, is that this is not the last time you come and be with us. We want you to come back. There are things we can't cover tonight that are important. And we want you to have an interest perhaps sparked. Maybe, maybe a question comes up in your mind this evening. And that's intended. We want to study the Bible with you. And we can't study everything we need to study tonight. We can't go into the depth that the, the Bible deserves tonight. And so we encourage you to come back. We'll meet tomorrow, Lord willing, from 9.30 to 12. We'll meet on Wednesday um, from 7 to 8 for Bible classes. And that will continue throughout the time the Lord provides for us before He comes again. So we encourage you to be with us again if you have the opportunity. And so while I can't cover everything we believe here in this place and we practice here in this place, I'll try to hit some highlights. But I think it is sufficient to say that we believe what the Bible says and we seek to practice what it commands, what it requires. Now, some might suggest that that's not a sufficient statement, but I believe that it is the only statement that we should give. When we ask a person what they believe, this should be what we turn to. It's the only thing that matters. It's the only thing that is eternal. It's the only thing that has the spiritual divine power for salvation. So we believe what the Bible says. Now, certainly we've got to understand what the Bible says and be able to explain what the Bible says. It is a book to be comprehended. It is a book filled with eternal and saving information that must be read and understood and practiced. But suffice it to say, we believe what the Bible says. We hope you do too. But we're going to go through some things this evening that might spark an interest in you, might spark some questions, might cause you to doubt whether 
what you're doing or what you're believing is at the very least the same as what we claim to be doing and believing that the Bible says. I want to assert to you before we get any further that if you believe something that we say we don't believe or if we believe something that you say you don't believe or we believe contradictory things that cannot coexist, it's not right for us to depart from this place and just accept that we believe different things. It's not wise for us to just suggest that we should go along to get along. It is not wise for us to just ignore differences. Because in the New Testament, we see unity. We see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who are one. And Jesus prayed that His believers would be one. And so no doubt, I'm sure you claim to be a believer. And I claim to be a believer. We are believers here. I wholeheartedly believe that. That we are the people who are following Jesus. But we've got to do it by the book or else it's not so. And so we believe what the Bible says. In Hebrews chapter 1 and in verse 2, it says, In these last days God has spoken by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom He made the world. I want to be impressed, and I want you to be impressed, by the fact that He has spoken through His Son. That's past tense. And so what He has spoken is what we believe. And I would suggest to you that He's not speaking anymore. In Jude verse 3, we see that the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. That body of faith, that body of principles and beliefs, that object of our faith has been once for all delivered. And so the Apostle Paul instructs, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That Word and that Word alone, not any more and not any less, should dwell in us richly. Only that can save us. And so we believe what the Bible says. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, this is why we will simply assert to you that we believe what the Bible says, nothing more and nothing less, because Paul pointed out that all Scripture, we could say the whole Bible, is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's an emphatic statement there in verse 16 that shows the origin and thus the power of the Scripture. All Scripture, not part of it, we don't accept part of Scripture here. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It is the Greek word theonoustos, and it simply means God breathed. It comes from the mouth of God. And that's why we believe it all. And that's why we seek to do it all. You know, one has said, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. I'd suggest to you that there's a better statement along those lines. What we believe here in this place is that God said it, that settles it, and so we're going to believe it. And it's as simple as that. God has given us everything we need. We don't need a creed. We don't need a catechism. We don't need some index of our beliefs here. We simply turn to the pages of the New Testament. That's what we assert to you this evening. And we hope that that's an encouragement to you. We hope that's what you're seeking for. And if it is, we obviously invite you back and we encourage you to study with us this evening. Firstly, let me suggest to you, we believe what the Bible says, that sin is a universal problem. That is the, the basis for all that takes place in the whole Bible, that sin has struck mankind. In Romans 3 and verse 23, Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's a big deal because in chapter 6 and verse 23, he says that the wages of sin is death. We have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and He encompasses the entirety of the human race. All have sinned. 
And by that sin, we earn death. That's the wage that God must pay. That is a significant problem. And that is why God revealed to us His Word. But let me consider furthermore with you, in Ezekiel chapter 18, the nature of sin and the nature of man, very briefly. In Ezekiel 18 and verse 20, we read a little bit about that universal problem where Ezekiel writes, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. I would assert to you that each and every one of us here this evening and all who aren't here deserve death based on their own meritorious works of lawlessness. It does not equate with something that is inherited. It certainly is not a part of our nature. That may shock you this evening. We don't believe in this place in a sinful nature. We don't believe it because that is not what the Bible teaches. It teaches, as we've just read, the soul whose sin shall die. The court of law says that you are innocent until proven guilty. The Bible essentially teaches something similar, that you're innocent until you're not innocent anymore. Babies have no sin. We are not born with sin. We cannot inherit the sin of our fathers or our mothers. Sin is not a part of our nature. Sin is contrary to the nature God created us with. In Genesis 1 and verse 31, after God created the entire world and the universe, After each day concluded, he said it was good. On the sixth day, he finished the creation with his crowning glory, mankind. And he said they were very good. They were created in exactly the way God intended, and that is without sin to his glory. We are not born with sin. We do not inherit sin. In Romans, the fifth chapter and verse 12, a verse that many like to teach, inherited sin and total hereditary depravity. It says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, death spread to all men. But that is not original sin. That is not inherited total depravity. He tells us why death spread to all men, because all sin. We believe what the Bible says. We believe that sin is a universal problem, but it's not because we are born with it. It's because we make the wrong choice. But thank God for the rest of Romans 6 and verse 23, because Paul says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we believe what the Bible says, that God sent His Son to save all men. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, God says through the pen of His apostle Paul, He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Many will be lost for eternity, but it's not because God wanted it. God desires the salvation of each and every one here and each and every one who is not in this building at this time. He wants us to be with Him. So He sent His Son. John 3.16 tells us, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so as sin is a universal problem, God's Son is the universal solution. It is universally offered to all men He says world, not a designated few, not a predestined few. We don't believe that our fate is sealed before we're ever born. The Bible does not indicate that or else John 3.16 wouldn't make any sense. Whoever believes in Him. But you notice that. Whoever is universal but believes is exclusive. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life, which means whoever does not believe Him will perish and will not have everlasting life. We believe that. And we teach that here. 
In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9, though, it's important to note that this was not a reciprocal action of love on God's part. It was the beginning of love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, John writes, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We rebelled against Him, and it is in our sin that God sent His Son. We believe in the doctrine of grace that is espoused in the Holy Scriptures. Don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. We believe in grace. We believe that we can't earn our salvation. We believe we deserve death. We believe that it is not based on our merit that we have hope, but based on the gift, the free gift, the gift of grace, as Romans 5 and verse 15 describes it, the one man, Jesus Christ. Yet, while we believe that God sent His Son to save all men, it is universally offered, and it is by grace that anyone would be saved, we also believe in the fact that the gospel is the access into that gift of God's Son and His sacrifice. It's nothing else. The gospel is how you get into contact with the gift of God's grace. In Romans, the first chapter, in verse 16, then, the Apostle Paul plainly stated that he's not ashamed to preach, and this is why. He's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. And here's this part we saw in John 3.16, for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. We don't deny that we're not going to get to heaven without Jesus' Son and His sacrifice, the blood He shed on the cross. But what we'll assert to you is that the entirety of the gospel needs to be believed and obeyed in order for that sacrifice to be efficacious for your soul. We believe the gospel is God's power to salvation. Paul likewise said in his Corinthian letter in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But again, it's not separate from Jesus. We're not speaking of an intellectual salvation. We're not speaking of a meritorious salvation, which wouldn't be a salvation at all. It would be wages that are paid to us as we've earned it. We're speaking still of a gift by the grace of Jesus' sacrifice of unmerited and favorable grace of God bestowed upon each one of us, but through and through no other thing than the gospel. This is why Paul stated in Romans 8 and verse 2, the law of the Spirit of life, I would suggest to you that's the same as the gospel of Romans 1.16. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The reason the gospel is God's power to salvation is that it communicates the sacrifice of God's Son. You wouldn't know about Jesus except through the gospel. We wouldn't know a thing about God's Son except through the gospel. And the reason we know that Jesus' death is necessary for our salvation is through the gospel. But we can't just take part of it. We've got to take the whole. In Romans chapter 5, we read about that grace that includes the sacrifice of Christ's Son and it says there in verse 2 that we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That tells me that while it's universally offered, it's not universally accepted. It has to be accessed. It has to be desired. And we have to take action based on the instructions of the gospel. And that's what that faith is. We access the gift of grace in Christ's sacrifice by faith. Romans 10 and verse 17 tells us where that faith comes then. It comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. 
It doesn't come from man's wisdom. It doesn't come from any pastor or any person. It doesn't come from a college, a theological university. It doesn't come from any denominational creed. It doesn't come from a catechism. It doesn't come from any paper. It comes from the eternal message of God's Word. Paul spoke at some length about the consequences of speaking with man's wisdom to try to save others. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he stated that he didn't come with wisdom. He didn't come with philosophy or excellency of speech. And he stated the reason, because your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. We believe what the Bible says, because God wrote it, and our faith should be in His power. It is the sole access to the gift of Jesus' sacrifice. But along with that, we must understand and believe what the Bible says, that while the gospel is the sole access to the gift of Jesus' sacrifice, the gospel speaks about a saving faith that is obedient. We believe that because the Bible says it. You know, a lot is said about the Roman road to salvation. And I believe in the Roman road to salvation. That is what Romans says about salvation. But I don't believe what a lot say that is the Roman road to salvation. Because essentially the Roman road to salvation is summed up in this phrase, we're saved by grace only through faith only, or by faith only through grace only. I want to tell you, if there's something that is only or alone, there can't be anything else. So it's either grace or faith, it can't be both. We believe though in the Roman road to salvation, and it's not by grace only and by faith only. It includes all the gospel says, it includes all that God requires of us. And I want us to notice the bookends there of Romans. In chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul, speaking of his apostleship, said through him, we have received grace and apostleship. Why did they receive that grace and apostleship? Why, Why were they chosen by Jesus to bring his eternal message to the world? He says, for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Likewise, we mentioned it's the bookends in chapter 16 of Romans and in verse 26, the same phrase is used. The gospel and preaching of Christ and the revelation of the mystery and the prophetic scriptures made known and the commandment of the everlasting God is for obedience to the faith. In literature, I think it's understood that when you have something at the beginning and you have something at the end, it is by design so that we can understand the middle. When he speaks about salvation by faith in Romans, it's a faith that obeys. Other translations say obedience of faith. That tells me that saving faith, in hearing in saving faith, according to what the Bible says, and we believe what the Bible says, is obedience. It's not an assent to facts. It's not merely a mental procedure. It is something that starts in the mind. It is the conviction of heart, which is displayed through an obedience to God's will, to the gospel. I would challenge you to find every place in the New Testament that speaks about faith only. And I'm confident that you'll only find it in one place. In James chapter 2 and verse 24, James writes by inspiration saying, You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. The only time we see faith only in the New Testament is in the negative. We are not saved by faith only. We are saved by the gospel though. I want to impress you with what Jesus told His apostles in Mark 16. In verse 15, He gave the marching orders that we often refer to as the Great Commission. They are going to go into the world and preach the gospel. Paul spoke about that in Romans 1 and verse 5. And the reason why they were given that appointment is so that people would obey the faith or have an obedience of faith. And this is what Jesus told them to go preach. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
We believe that the gospel is the sole access into the gift of God's Son, His death on the cross. But we believe that the gospel requires an obedience of faith for that salvation to be received. And so he said, go preach the gospel. Nothing more, nothing less. And in the 16th verse, we see some of the important contents of that gospel. And Jesus is saying it, not Jeremiah. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. I want to tell you that baptism is a part of the gospel that is not merely suggested, but it is commanded. It is an imperative. If we're not baptized as Jesus commanded, we will not be saved. We believe what the Bible says. And the Bible just said that in Mark 16 and verse 16. You know, this really reads like a, an equation. Belief plus baptism equals salvation. We may say 2 plus 3 equals 5. And that's why he says he who does not believe will be condemned because 2 plus nothing is not 5. He doesn't have to say baptism in the second part of that verse. He simply tells us what we must do to be saved and then he tells us what we must do to be condemned. Now what do we want? We believe what the Bible says. And we believe the Bible says in order to be saved, we must believe and we must be baptized. And that's not a contradiction of the Roman road to salvation. Salvation by faith, by grace through faith. Because in Colossians 2 and verse 12, I want to impress you with what the act of baptism demonstrates. Firstly, understand it's a command of God. Jesus said it. He's telling us we must be baptized. But it by no means merits our salvation. It is definitely equated with faith. It is inseparable from faith. In verse 12 of Colossians 2 then, Paul said that you are buried with Him in baptism in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. You know what salvation by faith looks like? It's when the Israelites are cornered in at the Red Sea and the Egyptians are closing in on them and they are fainting and God separates the waters and they pass through it. They were saved by faith. Hebrews 11 speaks to that much. They were saved by grace through faith. They didn't merit their salvation, but they did have faith in the working of God. And that's why they took the first step on dry land where water used to cover it. That's what baptism is. And I want to tell you that it's merely the first step. We believe what the Bible says, and that's what the Bible teaches. In Romans 6 and verse 4, it is demonstrated that we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. We said, as we read in the Bible, that sin is a universal problem. We believe that. And that is an image of our old life if we've been saved. Baptism marks the first step of our obedience of faith, which implies we continue to obey by faith. That's the newness of life. In verse 17 of this same chapter, Paul said, God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We believe that's exactly what the Bible teaches. We also believe what the Bible says and that there is only one church and that church is comprised of the saved. When an individual obeys what was enlisted in the Great Commission of Mark 16 and verses 15 and 16, that individual is saved and added to the group of people who have been saved. 
And that's what church means. It means the called out. Called out of darkness, of sin and death into His marvelous light of righteousness and eternal life and fellowship with God. Those marching orders in Mark 16 were given to the apostles. And we see them unfold in Acts, the second chapter, when Peter, one of the apostles, after preaching Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, said that He has been made both Lord and Christ. And the people who killed Him were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? They're saying, what shall we do to be saved? And this is what Peter said, according to the Great Commission, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You shall receive salvation. But I want us to notice in verse 40 and 41, when he continued to testify and exhort to them, be saved from this perverse generation. Those who gladly received his word, they didn't question the command of baptism. It says that they were baptized, and that day 3,000 souls were added to them. Them is identified in verse 47. The Lord had added to the church daily those who are being saved. Those who have obeyed the gospel and received the gift of Christ's sacrifice are saved and they are added to the body who has been saved. Every individual who has been saved makes up that church. This is the church that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 16 and verse 18 when Peter made the great confession and he said, I say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I want us to be impressed by the singular word he uses, I will build my church. There are only one group of saved people. Those people are the church, singular, that Jesus said he would build. He never said he would build multiple churches. He said he would build his church. This is why in Ephesians 1 and verse 22, it makes sense for Paul to use this figure. He put all things under his feet. God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him to be head over all things to his church, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. And this is why in chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul states that there is one body because it is anatomically correct to say so. We don't see anybody walking around with multiple heads or multiple bodies. What is natural is for a body to have a head and a head to be attached to a body. And this is why the figure makes sense with the spiritual application. And so when we consider the ideas of denominationalism, where there is one head, Christ is what they claim. But there are multiple churches, there are multiple bodies. It doesn't fit this figure. We don't believe that because we don't believe the Bible teaches it. We also believe to be a part of a different body than that one is to not be saved. Again, I want to stress, we believe that Christ is the head of that one church. There's a similar scripture in Colossians chapter 3 or 1 and verse 18 that says, He is the head of the body the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have preeminence. Preeminence meaning first in rank. He's talking about authority, which is what headship demonstrates. And so when we say we believe Christ is the one head of His one body, the one church, we believe He has that authority. In Matthew 28 and verse 18, He said before He gave those marching orders, all authority has been given Me in heaven and on earth. That leaves no authority for some person on earth. It leaves no authority for some board of directors. It leaves no authority for any demonstration of deciding doctrine and deciding practice. 
Colossians 3 and verse 17 demonstrates the practicality of his preeminence, his authority, his headship. Whatever we do in word or deed, we must do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, that is, by his authority. In Acts 2 and verse 36, this is what Peter stated, that he has been made both Lord and Christ. We hear a lot about that today. People accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But I want to impress you by what Jesus said in Luke 6 and verse 46 to people who accepted Him as Lord. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Lord is a word which simply connotes one who has authority. And Jesus says, I have all authority. Do you accept Him as Lord? We do here. But if we do, we must demonstrate that in our lives and in our practices at this place. We believe, the Bible says, Christ is head of the one church, and we accept it by faith. We also then believe that Christ's church has distinct identifiable characteristics. You know, when there's one, and Christ said He will build His church, one singular. When there's something that is one, it's unique. If there's multiple, it's no longer truly unique. We believe the Bible teaches of one church. We accept that by faith. And therefore, we accept by faith that His one church is very unique. And when you have something that is truly one of a kind, you can distinguish that from other things, perhaps fraudulent items. We believe the church is one, and we believe it can be identified because it has special qualities and characteristics. In Hebrews 8 and verse 5, Moses was commanded to make something very unique in the tabernacle. And it would only be unique as it was exactly different from everything else and exactly as God wants it. And so he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. That was really a type of what was to come. That was a foreshadow of what we have now. And this is why Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And so there is a pattern in the New Testament, something that we practice, something that we adhere to. We are attempting to do that here in this place. We want to be that church we read about in the pattern of the New Testament, and we believe we are. I don't believe that's an arrogant claim. I believe it's a humble submission to the authority of Christ. We want to do only what He says to do. Those identifiable and distinct characteristics are summed up in the work, worship, and organization of the church. The work that the church of the New Testament did was evangelize. They preached the gospel to every creature as Jesus told them to in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. They baptize and make disciples by doing so. And they further teach all things, Matthew 28 and verses 19 through 20. But the church is also comprised of people who are saved that need continual edification. They need to be encouraged and built up in the most holy faith. And that's exactly what we see in the pages of the New Testament the church involved in the work of edification. In Ephesians 4, in verse 16, we edify each other in love. It doesn't involve social activities. It involves spiritual fellowship in matters pertaining to the Scripture. And the church of the New Testament that we are trying to be like also was given to the work of very limited benevolence. In Romans 15, in verse 26, we have one of those examples where it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So we don't have benevolent practices where we reach out to those who are not among this one body of the saved because that's not what the church of the New Testament did. We believe that there are identifying characteristics of that one church, and the work is one of them. We believe that the Bible teaches there is very unique worship 
that is enforced in the pattern of the New Testament, and we attempt to adhere to that pattern in this place. In the New Testament, we see the church singing songs together. In Colossians 3 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. In fact, I would challenge you to go through your New Testament and try to find all the places where it speaks about musical worship and you'll only see singing that is mentioned. That's why we didn't use instruments tonight. It's because the Bible didn't say it, so we don't believe that's okay. In Acts 2 and verse 42, when they were added to the church, it says they continued steadfastly in a number of things. One of those things is prayers, and so we pray to God. That's acceptable worship according to that pattern. In Acts 20 and verse 7, it shows that a continued practice of the first century disciples was to gather together on the first day of the week in order to break bread. That is, partake of the Lord's Supper that Jesus established and instituted in Matthew 26 and that Paul alluded to in 1 Corinthians 11. And in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul used the phrase, as often as you do this. And so it's often, and the only time we see the day is in Acts 20 and verse 7. So every first day of the week, we gather to take the Lord's Supper. You'll also notice in Acts 20 and verse 7 that Paul was with them and he spoke to them and continued his message till midnight. Preaching the gospel is certainly acceptable worship according to the pattern. In 1 Corinthians 16, lastly, we see that they were commanded, like the churches of Galatia, the Corinthians, and we are commanded that on the first day of the week, we lay something aside, storing up as we may prosper. We give of our means back to the Lord for the carrying on of His work. We believe also among these distinct identifiable characteristics are the things which make up the organization of this one church. Christ is the head. We've noticed that. He is the authority, the sole authority. And He has one church, but the globe is pretty big. And so there are local groups of believers that make up what we can call local congregations. Yet those individuals are all a part of the one universal body. In Romans 16 and verse 16 then, Paul uses the plural, the churches of Christ greet you. And we believe what Philippians 1 and verse 1 shows us is the pattern. Paul writes to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with all the bishops and the deacons. In any local congregation, what you'll see in the New Testament and what we try to attempt to follow in this place is to have bishops and deacons. Bishops is the same person who is described in other parts of Scripture as an elder, an overseer, a shepherd, or a pastor. There's always more than one, and they are those who shepherd the flock among them. 1 Peter 5 and verse 2. We believe there is local church autonomy. We don't follow what other churches follow. We follow what the Lord says. If someone else departs, we don't make that choice. We stay with the Lord. We also believe what the Bible says, and that is that this church is eternal. You know, someone might suggest that it's a fool's errand to try to be the one church that we read about in the New Testament, that it's impossible. You'll never find it in this world. But I would assert to you that when Jesus showed us that His church will never be destroyed, He said the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. His death did not prevail against His attempt to build His church. He built it. And there is no death that will prevail against His church from now on forth. It is eternal. In Matthew 16, in verse 19, He equates that one church with the kingdom of heaven. And so those who would separate church and kingdom don't believe what the Bible says. The church and the kingdom are the same institution. 
And Daniel 2 and verse 44, Daniel prophesied about the establishment of that kingdom, the establishment then of that church, and he said that it will never be destroyed. It is forever. So we believe that it exists today. And we believe that we are a part of that one church today. Because it is forever, it is eternal. You can be a part of that one church as well. We also believe along these same lines of what the Bible says, that Jesus will return to judge the world. In Hebrews 9 and verse 27, the Hebrew writer says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after this, the judgment. Jesus spoke to some length about this judgment in John 5 and verse 28. He told the people there, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. We believe that's going to happen. I have no doubt in my mind, and the brethren here have no doubts in their mind, that this is going to occur. That the entirety of the human race, from Adam on forth, will be raised in the end and judged for the deeds done in the body. This is why it's so important to be identified with those who are saved. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13, the Ecclesiastic writer said that the whole matter is to fear God and keep His commandments. This is man's all. This is why you exist. And this is why it's of utmost importance that we look at what the Bible says. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. In John chapter 12 and verse 48, we're given the standard of judgment. It's not something that we don't know about. In fact, Jesus has given us the answers to the test, so to speak. And so we'll have no excuse. We believe that. He rejects me and does not receive my words. Has that which judges him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in the last day. We believe that that's going to happen. But I would assert to you that we even believe that we are not exempt from that judgment. We believe in this place that we're a part of that one church. We believe that we are the New Testament church in the 21st century. And I believe that that's by the design of Christ. His power has sustained His church to this age. We believe we're a part of it, but we also believe that He'll judge us. In Hebrews 10 and verse 30, it says that vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge His people. We believe wholeheartedly that we can fall. We don't believe in the erroneous doctrine of once saved, always saved, because we believe what the Bible says, and the Bible says the exact opposite. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15, the Hebrew writer said, we are to look carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Someone says, that can't happen. The Hebrew writer, by inspiration, said it can. We need to believe that. We hope you'll believe that. And we hope you'll act accordingly. And so according to that judgment, we believe what the Bible says. Lastly, thank you for bearing with me that each individual will spend eternity in one of two places. We will be judged by the deeds done in the body. There is a principle in Scripture we oftentimes refer to as the seed principle. Billy preached on that last night to some degree, that if you sow the gospel, you'll get a Christian. You'll get a member of that one church. If you sow a different seed, you're not going to get a Christian. In Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul used that same analogy. He said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. The Bible says that, and we believe it. We believe that every single thing we do in our body is of eternal significance. 
There is no insignificant action in the flesh. It all has eternal consequences. And so we want to do what the Bible says. We believe there are only two places where we can choose to go. Everyone makes a choice, but there are only two destinations. Jesus, looking into the future of judgment in Matthew 25 and verse 34, said that the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Similarly, in verse 41, it says that he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you curse, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And in verse 46, he summarizes it. that These will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Those are the only two options. There's two groups of people on the earth. There's going to be two groups of people in eternity. One will be punished for eternity. One will have eternal life. But I want us to be impressed by something Jesus said. The Bible says it and we believe it in this place. That these are prepared places. They are prepared places for prepared people. Someone will suggest that there's no way a good God full of grace and mercy would ever send anyone to a place like hell described in the New Testament. But we believe what the Bible says. And the Bible clearly says He will. But I would assert to you that that's only part of the truth. That's only half of the truth. Because while God will send people to hell, and He will welcome people into heaven, ultimately people are choosing to go to hell or choosing to go to heaven. We believe the Bible demonstrates that. In Matthew 7, in verse 13, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way which leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. And so I want to leave you with a question this evening. We believe what the Bible says. We believe that we are part of the church Jesus built. Where do you worship? What do you believe? And are you certain that it's correct? There's a great question to ask. Are we merely supposing that we're right with God? Or are we certain? Can we be certain? I believe we can be. That's why God revealed His Word to us. We in this place have no doubt. We're not closed off to discussion. There may be questions that we don't know the exact answers to at one given point of time, but I want to tell you there are answers that we're not going to question because the Bible speaks plainly, and we believe what the Bible says. Are you certain? We want to invite you to study with us. We want to invite you to come back. This is what this was all about. We can't go to everything that we believe and practice in this place, and you can understand why by just holding the Bible in your hands. But I want to tell you we believe it all. And if you believe it, and you want to be a part of a people who believe it, we want you to come back and study with us. You know, we want to leave you with one other thing this evening, and that is the Lord's invitation. And we believe we have the authority to offer that eternal invitation. In Revelation 22 and in verse 17, the Scripture tells us that the Spirit and Bride say, Come, and let him who thirsts hear say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. The Spirit says, Come, and the instrument He uses to give that invitation is the Word. In Ephesians 6 and verse 17, it says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The Spirit says, Come. The Word of God offers eternal life. It tells us that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It tells us that God sent Him, that whoever believes in Him can be saved. The Spirit says, come. And the Bride of Christ, which is His church, says, come. We don't want you to be shoved away. We want you to come. 
We want you to feel welcome. We want you to have the confidence to ask questions, to investigate, because that's what all of us had to do. That's what it takes. And we invite you to come and drink of the everlasting waters. You heard what Jesus said. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. The Bible says it, so we believe it. Do you? If you have, uh, if you are subject to the invitation call, we don't want you to wait. If you have any questions, we don't want you to wait. We invite you to come forward while we stand and sing the song of invitation.